Okay, good morning. Good morning, good morning. First of all, a great rally last night. Everyone who came, thank you very much. We had about 800 people here for our Yom Yerushalayim rally for Israel. It was a wonderful event and concert. So if you came, appreciate it. If you didn't come, I'm sure you had a fantastic excuse because if you didn't, God bless you. Okay. Parshas Naso. We are... Uh, we have the privilege of reading Parshas Nasa the Shabbos. So again, we'll give a quick overview first, and then we'll uh, we'll get into the details of one of the specific sections. Parshas Nasa is an action-packed parsha. We've got a lot going on. The uh, parsha begins um, with the responsibilities of uh, the family of Gershon. Rosh Bnei Gershon Gamhem Levesav Osam Lamishpach Osam. It's kind of a continuation of the census. Merari's responsibilities and the totals. Then we get into the. Uh, we uh, send out of the camp anybody who is impure, trying to maintain the purification of the Machane Yisrael, of the Jewish camp. The laws of theft from a Jew and from a Ger, if somebody steals, that it's not only a physical uh, uh, sin, but it's one that is spiritual as well. Then we get to the famous section of the Sota, the wayward wife, a woman who practices infidelity. His husband, her husband suspects her. Uh, warns her, accuses her. Nevertheless, she's isolated with a man in front of witnesses, and then she is tested if she denies that she indeed had an affair. She's brought to the Beis Hamikdash to the Kohen. She drinks of the May Mararim. She drinks of the the bitter water, the May Marim, that uh, the water that one of the ingredients is Shem Hashem. God's name itself is dissolved into the water. Which the Gemara concludes, you see that God is even willing to allow His name to be erased for Shalom Bias. To God, Shalom Bias is a primary value. Um, it's a slippery slope. It's not to say that one should violate Shabbos because you know Shalom Bias, the spouse, is not happy that they're keeping Shabbos. Um, but um, but you see that God's willing to even allow His name to be erased in order to uh, in order to maintain a sense of Shalom Bias. Sorry. So, um, so that's the Soto. The woman drinks the water if indeed she's innocent and she is blessed with having a child easily with fertility. If she is indeed guilty as her husband accuses her, then she dies a graphic and horrific death. So it's a lovely heartwarming section in this week's Parsha. The, um, she's given an opportunity to confess. The Kohen scares her, uncovers her hair. In fact, this is the origin of the source of the biblical uh, source for a woman, a married woman covering her hair. And the fact that the Torah makes a reference to the accused woman, the Sota, uncovering her hair as part of the process indicates that a married woman does cover her hair. So that's learned from this section. Let's talk later. We talk later. The Nazir, the following, uh, the, ne- the very next section is the section that we're going to uh, spend time on, which is a person who takes a vow of Nazirus, a person who takes a vow to be a Nazir and what that is all about. And that goes into the priestly blessing, goes into Birchas Kohanim. We know the priests have what we call in the Yiddish Duchening, uh, the priests for Ashkenazim outside of Eretz Yisrael, outside of Israel, only on the major holidays, for Sephardim every single day of the year, and for all Jews in Israel every day. The uh, Kohanim, the priests, bless the people. And the formula is a very interesting formula, which we're not going to spend time on now. Then finally, the uh, Parsha gets to the uh, offerings of each of the 12 tribes. Um, I once heard Rabbi Prozansky and Tinek describe this as a parsha only a bar mitzvah boy's mother can love because the end of the parsha, which is a very long, goes through these 12 offerings where each of the Nisim, each of the princes seem to bring the identical korban and yet the Torah 
repeats each time, only substituting their name, replacing their name, even though the sacrifice seems to be identical. Why would the Torah take up such valuable space doing that? Is a, is a good question. So these are, that's an overview of what the pressure, like I said, it's action-packed, there's a lot going on, but what I want to focus on this morning together um, in, an, in analyzing the text is the section of the Nazir. So we begin Perak Vav, chapter 6 of Bamidbar, Perak Vav Pasakal. Says the Torah, Vayidaber Shema Moshe Lemor, God spoke to Moshe saying, Daber el b'nei Yisrael v'yamarta alayhem. Speak to the Jewish people and say to them, Ish o isha ki afli lindor neder nazir lazir lashem. God spoke to Moshe and he told him, a man or a woman who wants to take a vow, takes an oath to be a Nazir, to live a life of abstinence for the sake of Hashem, is allowed to do so, and the Torah goes on to say exactly what they need to do. What does it mean to be a Nazir? What is this man or woman doing? What is the abstinence they're practicing? They are practicing abstinence from anything made from grapes, even the skin, you shall not eat. You're not allowed to benefit from uh, aged wine, from vinegar of wine, vinegar of aged wine, from the grape, any grape product. Grapes, grape juice, wine, vinegar, any grape product is prohibited to the Nazir. So there's a number of questions. Let's see how sensitive you are to the text. What questions can we ask here? So, first of all, the... Uh, I think the Orachayim asked a question, which I appreciated his question more than I do his answer. But if you look at the Orachayim HaKadosh, Kefal of Lomar, Daber and Viamarta. Pasuk says, Daber al Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, Viamarta alayim, and say to them. Isn't that redundant? If you're speaking to the Jewish people, aren't you saying something to them? Pasuk should just say, Daber al Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people. Or, Amor, what is Daber and Viamarta? It seems redundant and superfluous. That's his question. So the Orachayim concludes that there are perhaps two types of Nazirim. There are two types of uh, this uh, individual who takes this vow. One we praise, one is praiseworthy and one is less praiseworthy. So since the Torah is going to indicate that there are real two categories of being a Nazir, that's why it introduces it with this double language of Daber and via Marta. You could read his answer. I'm not sure I fully understand it or that it's fully compelling, but I like his question. Daber and via Marta, which actually you see in the Parsha a few times, even the section prior also deals with Daber and via Marta. And each time the Orchaim asks that question. Why the double language? You have to resolve that. What's interesting here is that uh, both a man or a woman can be a Nazir. Ish o isha ki or neder Nazir lazir Hashem. I'll tell you an interesting thing. When, when in Yeshiva University, I don't know if this is true, I like to think of myself that I graduated like yesterday, but it's been already a long time since I was there. So Rav Shechter, Rav Hersha Shechter, one of my Rebbeim, is the Rosh Kolo of the Kolo in Yeshiva University. So when you graduate the college, if you want to learn in the Kolo, you have to take a Bechina, you have to take a test to make sure that you qualify to enter. So, Rosh Shechter has a number of questions. He meets with you and he asks you some questions to make sure you qualify for the Kolo. So, one of the questions that he used to ask, he was famous for asking this question, is he would turn to the Yeshiva Bakram and he would say, Can a woman be a Nazir? Can a woman be a Nazir? So, Yeshiva guys would sit there and they would clear. I don't know, is a Nazir a mitzvah to say Shazman Grama? Is it a time-bound mitzvah? Women are exempt. They would start to try to figure it out. And that was his point. The point that he was trying to make to them is, you're holding in Gemara, you're analyzing intellectual gymnastics about uh, time-bound mitzvahs. It's a pasuk, you got another chumash. 
If you go to Rav Shechter Shiyurim, you know, I sat in Rav Shechter Shiyurim for a, a number of years. If you know, Rav Shechter's emphasis always was, you start from the Pasuk. If you're teaching a Halacha, you begin from the Pasuk. And then you get to the Gemara. You can't start in the Gemara and not know the Pesukim. You have to know not only Chumash, but you have to know all of uh, Tanakh. So, uh, so it's an interesting thing. Ish o Isha. We think of a Nazar, many automatically think in their mind of a man. This week's Haftorah, we read the story of Shimshon who was perhaps the most famous Nazir of them all. I may speak about a Shabbos afternoon. Uh, but the truth is a woman could qualify as a Nazir also. Ish o Isha. Man or woman could qualify as a Nazir. Now the Torah uses a very interesting word here. Ki yafli lindor neder. Why doesn't it just say ki yidor neder? A man or a woman, if they take a vow to be a Nazir. What does the word yafli mean? What is the translation of the word Yafli. So if you look at the uh, art scroll here in the stone Chumash, a man or a woman who shall disassociate uh, dis- dissociate himself by taking a Nazarite vow. It doesn't really translate. That's the equivalent of translating ki yidor neder nazir lazir lashem. Art scroll doesn't really translate the word Yafli. What is the word Yafli doing here? So I call your attention to the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra makes a great comment. Yafli comes from the word Pela. What does the word Pela mean? Pela is a wonder. A Pela is something which is a total wonder. Yafli, the Ibn Ezra really is translating as Yafrish. Yafrish means to separate. To separate. And I guess that's what the art scroll is saying, to dissociate. To Yafli, Yafrish means to separate, to be apart. Because that's what ultimately the Nazir is really doing. What the Nazir is doing is abstaining from wine or a haircut or contact with a corpse. But the Ibn Ezra has a beautiful insight. He says, This individual is doing something which is nothing short of a Pela. Pela we use as kind of a Yiddish word. Pela means a wonder. It's a wonder. You see something which is unusual. You see something which is extraordinary. You see something which is puzzling or which is curious. You say, that's a Pela. It's a Pela Dika thing. It's a, it's a wondrous thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's so interesting. It's so unexpected. It's so uh, supernatural. It's so different. What a Pella! So Ibn Ezra says, Ki yafli. It's like the Torah sag. Somebody's willing to take a neder to be a Nazir? An individual is willing to forfeit these worldly pleasures in order to attain greater holiness and sanctity? Somebody's willing to sacrifice voluntarily voluntarily say, I don't need to engage in the worldly pleasures. I want to live a life of asceticism and abstinence and to be holy and to be sacred. That individual is nothing short of a Pella. What a wonder. Wow. That's a wonder. So Ibn Ezra beautifully is uh, saying, that's Pshat Ish O Isha Ki Yafli Lindor Neder. It's nothing short of a Pella when they're willing to do that. Rashi is a different interpretation. Yeah, lust. The individual is willing to give up what they're tempted by, what they're drawn to. The Rashi is a different Yafli. Yafrish. I mean, Rashi, just like the Ibn Ezra. No, it's ultimately the real explanation, the real translation of the word Yafli is Yafrish. The real translation is to separate, to dissociate. But Rashi also says, what's the connection? Lama nismach haparshas nazir laparshas sota. Loma lecha shekolaro asota bekilkula yazir atzma min hayayin. Shuhumevi ledei niyuf. Rashi, by the way, in all of this section, see, Parshas Naso seems to be a conglomerate of uh, really unconnected laws and narratives. 
what does B'nai Gershon and Merari have to do with someone stealing? What does that have to do with the Sota? What does that have to do with the Nazir? What does that have to do with Birchas Kalanim? What does that have to do with the Nisayim? What do these things have to do with one another? We don't think that God put together a book in which just, you know, off the top of his, house, of his head, he threw random items together to form a Parsha. There needs to be, excuse me, some unifying theme. What's the connection? So Rashi struggles to understand within each of these sections he says why what's the juxtaposition of these sections why are they connected what can we learn not only from the content of the section itself but what can we extrapolate and learn from the positioning from the juxtaposition of these sections one to the other so Rashi says you know what you could learn here if you see a woman in all of her glory and I say that, of course, in a facetious manner. You see a woman who indeed was disloyal, indeed who was who had lacked in, who lacked fidelity to her husband. There's a woman who was accused, and she cheats on her husband. And you see the process that she is put through, in which she's brought to the base of Mikdash, and she's accused. She's given an opportunity to confess. She doesn't confess. Her hair is uncovered. She's humiliated publicly. She then drinks from this water. And indeed, if she is guilty, she dies a horrific death. So what's the conclusion? If you see that, take a vow of abstinence from wine. Because the Gemara in Sota says that what is one of the key causes of promiscuity and illicit relations and affairs? Wine. People drink. Their inhibitions are down. When their inhibitions are down, they have poor judgment. Their lust and desires and temptations take over and they make really, really, really bad, bad decisions. Often, it's not in a state of sobriety that people make these poor decisions, but they've had a few cocktails, they've had a few drinks, they've been on the business trip, they're at the bar in the hotel, they're at the lounge, and in that context, they make that poor decision. So Rashi says, when you see the Sota Bikilkula, when you see what the result of drinking can be, the appropriate response is to say, I want none of that. I'm not going to drink like that. I'm going to take a vow of abstinence. So the question is on Rashi, I once saw a great question. You see a Sota Bikilkula. If you see this woman and you really see what the result of her actions are, that she's caused to go through this humiliating process, she drinks this water, she dies this explosion, her body explodes in the temple, this horrific death, you think you need to take a vow not to drink wine? Mm-hmm. Seeing the consequences isn't enough? If you told me that you saw that she did this after drinking wine, she may get away with it, she may not get away with it, people know, people don't know, she confided in you privately that I once drank too much and I cheated on my husband and I hope this doesn't come back to ruin my life. So then I can see you having to say, I'm going to take a vow of abstinence now because I'm going to, i got to take an oath that I'm staying away from wine. I see what it can lead to. But if a person already witnesses and observes what can happen, the horrific outcome, the consequences of such poor decision-making, do they need to take a vow? Or just seeing the consequences will make sure, will ensure that they don't mimic that behavior. Why do you have to go so far as to take a vow? It's a great question. I have even a greater answer, but I'm not going to share it with you because I may use it in the drusha on Shabbos morning. I haven't decided yet. So that's Rashi Kiyafli. Rashi is explaining what is the connection uh, between one parsha and the other. The Ibn Ezra says, Yafli is Pella. It's Peladic that a person would be willing to forfeit their desires, the taiva, to give up, to control, to be disciplined over one's desires, over one's taiva, is nothing short of a, of a Pella. 
neder nazir ein nazira bechol makom shazrashi ela prisha afkan shapirish minhayayin. When you see the language of nazir, what does nazir really mean? We don't really translate the word nazir. We use nazir as the noun. It could, but Rashi says it means prisha. It means separation. It means to be apart. Because this individual is living a life of asceticism. They are living a life of abstinence. They are living a life apart. Lahazir lasham, Rashi continues. Lahavdil atzuminayayin lashem shamayim. What's the reason? Not because you read that alcohol is fattening and it's bad for you, and not because of some other ulterior motive. But his reason, his motivation to take this vow of abstinence is. L'shem Shamayim, because wine is an obstacle to service of Hashem, too much wine I should say, and therefore he takes his vow of abstinence to make sure that he is of clear mind, that he is sober, that his judgment and intent are pure, and that he's able to connect with Hashem. But he can drink scotch. But he can drink scotch, correct. Correct, it's wine products. Okay. Hold on, hold on. We've we got to hold the questions and comments till the end. Because we're not... No comment. We can't. we got to hold it till the end so you honor the people on the tape. Says the Svarno. If you look at the Svarno, Ravavadya Svarno, he also... Svarno is similar to the Ibn Ezra, Yafli. He doesn't say connected to the word Pella, but Yafli is Yafrish. He is separating himself from what? The Hevle Vita'anugos B'nai Adam. The, the mundane, useless pursuits of pleasure that man chases after. And why? Lindor Nedel Nazir, Lios Nazir, Uparashman Atanugos Hamurgalam. In order to distance himself from the habitual pleasures of this world. Lahazir Lashem, Lahafrashatsman Bikol Ela, Lamanyia Kulo Lashem. The goal of the Nazir, says the Sforno, is to separate from these worldly pleasures, to not feed desire, but to cut off desire, so that he will be exclusively dedicated to God. To be occupied with God's Torah, to walk in his ways, and to cling to him. Those are the goals of the Nazir. The Nazir is not doing this to lose weight. The Nazir is not doing this to look good. The Nazir is not doing this because it's stylish to grow your hair long. The Nazir's goal if properly done, is the man yakulo l'ashem, to be exclusively dedicated to Hashem, to have the clarity of mind to be occupied by Torah, and to have the clarity of thought to be able to pursue God and to cling to Him. And we'll see, that's also why he has to remain pure, because if he's contaminated by a corpse, he's limited in the contact he can have with Hashem, and that would also be an obstacle to his worship. But isn't Shefer a non-wine derivative? Yes, but it's she- no. Shecha here only means... Sheikha mixed with wine. Sheikha, if you used a, a uh, other kind of alcohol, scotch or whiskey or bourbon, and it was not mixed with wine, it would be permissible. It is grape and grape products that are prohibited to the Nazir. And, uh, and any Sheikha that has a wine derivative or that has wine mixed in as well. Okay, continuing. The, uh, the Kliyakar here asks a series of questions. Look on uh, Kliyakar and Pasik Beis. We said that this applies a man or a woman who do this peladika thing of taking a neder, of taking a vow. By the way, how long does it last, this vow? So it lasts as long as you want it to. A person could stipulate they want to be a Nazir for, for, an, for a day. A person could stipulate they want to be a Nazir for 10 years. Stam Nazir, says the Gemara, Mishnah. Stam Nazir Shloshim Yom. If a person just says, I'd like to take, I want to be a Nazir, they take a vow to be a Nazir, but they don't indicate how long, 
So the assumption, this is applies to another number of areas in Jewish law. For example, if a person takes a loan, if I borrow money from you, and I never told you how long I'm borrowing it from you. So I meet you at the candy machine and I say, I'm at the rally for Israel last night at the Boca Raton Synagogue where they're selling food as part of a fantastic, phenomenal rally. And I don't have money on me and I say, can I borrow $5 to get some food? And the parties never stipulated how long the loan was to take place. So the next day the lender comes and says, pay me back, you borrowed 5 bucks." The borrower has the right to say, you can't come after me for the money yet. Because if it was not stipulated, when we don't stipulate, the assumption is that a person has in mind 30 days. So 30 days, whether it's for a loan, whether it's for a vow of being a Nazir, if a person didn't stipulate how long, the assumption is a period of 30 days. In any case, the Kliakar says, Why do we have to mention a, a woman here? Why can't we use the generic term Ish, which the Torah employs all the time? And uses the generic term man to assume not the gender man, but the category of humanity, and a woman is included in that category. She's already included the Koonshin Shiba Torah, all of the punishments in the Torah. Mikoma Komparat Kan Isha, Kilakach Nismucha Parshas Nazila Parsha Sota, Loma Lacha Shakara Sota, the Kukuli Yazarat Menayayan. Says the Kliyakar something interesting. Says Rav Lunchitz um, something very interesting. He says that he lived. Where did he live? Not in Lodge. Lodge? Where did the Kliyakar live? Maybe this is revealing of his community. But he says that why does this? Uh, why does the Torah specifically mention a woman here? If normally she's subsumed under the category, the generic category of man, because after all, we said what is the connection between this parsha of Sota and Nazir? That a woman who see a man who sees a, anyone who sees a woman the Kilkula going through this process will take a vow of abstinence. Who is more likely to be influenced by wine to make these poor decisions? Says the Kliyakar, women. Okay. He says, and if you look, he continues, he says that men, because I guess of their body mass, they are able to absorb alcohol better than women. So if men drink alcohol, I guess everything obviously depends on the quantity one is drinking. But if men drink alcohol, maybe socially, recreationally, they could drink alcohol and not lose their judgment as easily. But women because uh, I guess are more susceptible to being influenced by a lesser amount of wine. So therefore, it is women who will, maybe that and the fact that it's a woman who was the sota. And therefore, women will see that sota bekukula and say, I don't want to be in that circumstance myself. So the Kliyakar says, even though normally women are included in Kolonshin Shabbat Torah and there's no reason to specifically mention women, it does so uh, anyway, because after all, this is on the heels of the Parsha of Sota, so we are specifically pointing this out for women to be protective of them. So what's the rule? So rule number one is New or aged wine you have to abstain. Vinegar of wine or vinegar of aged wine. Anything grapes have been steeped shall you not drink. Fresh and dried grapes shall he not eat. You can't eat grapes or grape products. You can't eat wine uh, or anything that has wine mixed in. Anything that has wine mixed in with it. The truth is a lot of our scotches and uh, sherry for sure, but a lot of the scotches and brandy and um, scotch and uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? 
Not scotch. Bourbon. Bourbon. Bourbon rye. Okay, we got all the got a whole bartenders here. Uh, whiskey. Thank you. Whiskey. Anyway, a lot of them are aged in casks, sherry casks that are wine that is absorbed in its walls. There are a lot of examples. So even though true, strictly speaking, if somebody had a pure, you know, potato vodka, the nuzzer could drink it and get drunk, which would violate the spirit of the law. But certainly in those days, the assumption was that wine fermented, grapes fermented, is what produces alcohol, and that's used uh, as a catalyst that's mixed in with these other uh, forms of alcohol, and that's what the individual is abstaining from. That's the first category they abstain from, is, uh, is grape products as alcohol. Pasuk Dawad, Ko yemein nizro mikol asher yaseh migefan ayayin mecharzanim v'yadzag lo yachal. All the days of his being a Nazir, anything made from wine, even the skin, he shall not eat. So even if the grape is crushed and all that remains is the skin, and the skin didn't ferment, nevertheless, because it's a grape product, one abstains from the grape. So that's category number one, the three things the Nazir abstains from. What's category number two? Pasuk hey. Kol yemein neder nizro ta'ar lo ya'avor al rosho ad melos hayamim asher yazir l'ashem kadosh yeh gadel Para Sa'ar Rosho. Pasakei, all the days of his being a Nazir, a razor, a scissor, shall not pass over his head until he completes the days of being a Nazir. Why? For the sake of Hashem, because he is holy. The growth of hair on his head shall grow. That he's growing hair. Gadel Para Sa'ar Rosho, his hair shall continue to grow on his head. So I ask you, why? I understand that alcohol is an impediment. Alcohol interferes with sincere worship of Hashem. I understand the poor role that alcohol plays. By the way, just to elaborate on that for a moment, how do we know that alcohol is so negative in the worship of Hashem? Are you allowed to drink when you're in the Beis HaMikdash? One is liable. Aaron's two sons died. A gazillion explanations are offered, but one of them is that they drank. They came in inebriated. They drank in the temple proper. And you're not allowed to. And of course, where did that opinion get that conclusion? Because the very next section after the death of Aaron's sons is the prohibition. Kohen and priests are not allowed to drink in the temple. Why? Why are you not allowed to drink in the temple? So I don't want to get into this at length. Rabbi Soloveitchik has a magnificent interpretation. It connects to Purim. Purim, a holiday which is characterized by drinking. How do you, so, so not Jewish to have drinking is a virtue. How do you have a whole holiday dedicated or characterized by drinking? So Rabbi Soloveitchik develops the notion that Purim is the, the holiday of exile. The miracle took place in Shushan. We do not say Hallel on Purim. Why? We remain in the fourth exile, the exile of Achashverosh, even today. Yes, yesterday we celebrated the reunification of Yerushalayim. We celebrated Jewish sovereignty over a united Yerushalayim and over Israel. But we don't have a base on Mikdash. The Geul of the redemption is incomplete. We still are in many ways under the exile of Achashverosh, under Akate Avde Achashverosh,anan over the exile of Rome, over the, over the fourth exile. So who was the one who said that's why you don't say Hallel? That was Rava. Rava was the one who said, why don't we say Hallel on Purim? Akate Avde Achashverosh,anan we are still uh, under the exile of Achashverosh. Who is the one who says you should drink on Purim? It's none other than Rava. 
The same Rav as the one who says he should drink. Is that a coincidence? Says the Rav, says Rabbi Salavechik, no. Why did Rav say you have to drink? It is because we don't have a base on Mikdash. You see, the greatest simcha, the greatest joy that a human being could possibly experience is to feel the presence of the Almighty, to be in the presence of the Creator of the universe. When one is in the base on Mikdash and we can taste yet but a fraction of this at the Kotel or the Kotel Tunnel Tours or if you go on Harabayas on the Temple Mount. You could taste, you could get just a, a taste of this. But when you feel the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of the Ribbona Shalom, when you feel the Almighty's hand, when you know with certainty and full confidence that He exists and that He guides your life and your destiny, nothing can give you greater joy because you feel at ease. You feel relaxed. You feel the ultimate comfort to know that everything that happens, happens for a reason, happens in our best interest. The greatest simcha, it's not a coincidence, says the Rav, whenever you find the term simcha being used in the Torah, you find the term, lifnei Hashem. V'samachta, lifnei Hashem. The Torah always uses the term simcha, joy, where is that really fulfilled? When one is lifnei Hashem, when one is before Hashem. When one is in God's presence. Real, genuine, authentic simcha is feeling the presence of Hashem. Says Rava, Purim, we don't have that opportunity. We don't have a Beis HaMikdash. We don't have what Pirkei Avos describes, the ten miracles that took place daily in the Beis HaMikdash, which were a reminder of God's presence and His existence. Ten miracles. Imagine, you were filled with doubt. You had a moment of hardship and you said, I just don't know. Is there God? Does He care? Is He involved in my life? You went to the Beis HaMikdash, you witnessed one of those miracles daily, and you felt relieved to know, oh, Hashem is there. Hashem is in my life. We don't have that. So where do we derive Simcha? In a counterfeit version. Says the Rav, that's why specifically on Purim, what we say is, you can't get the authentic Simcha, because so Simcha comes, you get a little high, you have a little bit of a Lachayim, and that little Lachayim brings a little joy, and that's the joy. But, to have a counterfeit experience when you have the potential and the possibility to have the authentic one is an affront to the Almighty, is an affront to Hashem, is an affront to the Rebbe Shalom. So you can't drink in the base of Mikdash. Not only can you not drink, it's a capital crime. Says the Torah, a person who drinks in the temple, in the base of Mikdash, is liable, is put to death. Put to death. Because to feel counterfeit simcha, to turn to a counterfeit version in the presence of Hashem is to deny Hashem is to, is to be an affront to Hashem so you see all of that was just to give you background that wine on the one hand it's kind of paradoxical because on the one hand our Jewish tradition is steeped in wine we drink wine for Kiddush we drink wine for Avdala we drink wine under the chuppah we drink wine at a bris we drink wine at a pidyon ben we drink wine at you name it what do we call when a couple gets engaged we make a lachaim <laughs> wine permeates our tradition but of course it does so in great moderation the wine in our tradition is to give a sense of chashivas is to give a sense of uh, dignity is to give a sense of regality to the occasion but, uh, but wine as a to pursue wine in excess not in moderation is something which is antithetical to Jewish values. It's a counterfeit form of simcha. And so the Nazir, the first thing that they abstain from is wine. No wine. Wine and being connected to God don't go together. 
If the only way that you can feel God in your life is by getting inebriated, that is an inauthentic experience. It's an inauthentic avenue to feel Hashem. It's a, it's a shortcut and an inauthentic avenue. So that's number one. But number two, we just read the Pasuk, Tar lo yavor arosho, a razor, a scissor, can't pass over his head. Nazar can't get a haircut. Why can't the Nazar get a haircut? What's wrong with getting a haircut? I understand how wine is an impediment to worship. How is a haircut an impediment? Guy can't have a long hair, a woman can't have long hair, and yet, daven with kavana, say to Hillam, learn well. How is hair an impediment? So look at the Sforno. Sforno in just a few short words explains. Tar lo yavor rosho, says the Sforno, yofi You know what hair represents? Beauty. Hair represents the aesthetic. Hair represents the pursuit of the external, of beauty. In fact, hair plays a significant role in Judaism. When we talk about women covering their hair, when we talk about the Nazir not being able to cut their hair, you talk about the Mitzorah um, having to shave their head as part of the rehabilitation process, talk about the Zav, hair plays a prominent role. And there are some who say, and this is very interesting, hair is the only body part that we can manipulate for beauty. Think about it for a moment. You could put makeup on, but that's an external thing. You can have uh, plastic surgery, and that's an external thing. You wear clothing, and that's an external thing. But hair is essentially the only body part. I guess you grow your nails long, but hair is really the only body part that can change and can change our image. Someone has long hair, they look one way. They cut their hair very short, they look totally different. Someone has manipulated their hair, they can look beautiful. Someone who is disheveled and unkempt, where do they look like that? You know, if you're not smelling an odor and you just look at someone from afar, they look disheveled and unkempt because of their hair. Hair is the external manifestation of beauty and of aesthetic. And that's part of the reason why a woman, a married woman covers her hair. Because if hair represents the external manifestation of the human body part of beauty, then that's something which is reserved for one's husband. But that's not our topic for today. But the Nazir, says the Svarno, why is the Nazir instructed not to cut their hair? Because they should not be consumed with the pursuit of beauty. Second impediment to pure worship, the second uh, obstacle or interference with connecting exclusively with Hashem is when one cares about the beauty and the material and the aesthetic of this world. And that's represented through the hair. So, you know, if, you, if you're always worried about shopping and the latest fashions and the latest fads, if you look in the mirror all the time and you're worried about how you look and you're this and you're that, it's going to uh, diminish your spirituality. That's not to say that a spiritual person is ugly. It's not to say that a spiritual person is unkept. You know, one of the greatest compliments that I ever receive, and thank God I receive it very often, is when people say to me, you know, your Rebetzin is so inspiring because she's so put together and she's so beautiful and yet she's so modest and she's so spiritual. And that's, I think, one of the great compliments and that's the ideal of the Jewish woman and it's true for men as well, is it doesn't mean to be spiritual you need to forfeit uh, any attention to how you look. You don't have to dress in styles from 50 years ago and, uh, and not care how you look. You can look attractive without looking attracting. And, uh, and you can pay attention without being consumed. 
So that's what the that's what the Sforno is saying. That the Nazir who's trying to go that extra mile. Remember, the Nazir is not the default for the average person. The average person should cut their hair. The average person should go to the beauty salon. The average person should have their hair done and feel good about how they look. The average person should enjoy a glass of wine at dinner and there's nothing wrong with it. The Nazir is not imposed on the average person. In fact, we'll get to it in a moment, that the Nazir might even not be the ideal. The Nazir might be less than the ideal. We'll see in a moment. But for the Nazir, whose goal is to have an exclusive relationship with Hashem, to promote spirituality without interference, so, first of all, they've got to remove wine from their lifestyle, and second of all, they don't get a haircut, which is symbolic of not caring at all about the physical world, exclusively pursuing the spiritual world. That's number two. Number three is Pasuk Vav, Ko Yimei Hazira Lashem Al Nefesh Meis Lo Yavo. Number three is all of the days of their uh, Nazir status. They are not allowed to become exposed to Tumas Mace. They cannot have contact with a corpse and they cannot become impure. They cannot become impure. Even to their father or their mother, their brother or their sister, they cannot have contact with their corpse. Because the some translated here, Nazar means the crown of God is on their head. The simple translation is the status of being a Nazir. A Nazir to God is on their head. Some see it as Nazar is a type of crown. There's a glory, there's a crown. And that crown even supersedes the contact with the immediate family members. And this is distinct to a Kohen. A Kohen is allowed to become impure to immediately family members. This Nazar can't. Why, Pasachas? Kol Yemei Nizro Kadoshu Lashem. All the days of his being a Nazir, he is holy, he is sanctified, he is sacred to God. What does that mean? What does that mean? Is that indicating he's called Kadosh? What we have here, and I'll just, uh, I'll give you the, well, we'll go into it a little bit right now. Um, when it comes to the Nazir, we seem to have two conflicting messages. On the one hand, this Pasuk, he's called Kadosh Lashem. He's holy, he's sacred to God. On the other hand, we'll see that when he concludes his Nazir status, his pledge, he offers a Korban Chatas. He brings a sin offering. Why is he bringing a sin offering? A sin offering is brought when a person does something wrong. When one makes a mistake, when one has an indiscretion. What did the Nazir do wrong? And more importantly, which is it? Is he Kadosh? Or is he a Chotei? Is he holy? Or is he a sinner? Did the Nazir do something right or did he do something wrong? There are two attitudes in Chazal towards this question. And we'll get to in a moment what's underlying it. So just in the translation of the word Kadosh here, you see a hint to these two conflicting opinions and approaches to the Nazir. Is the Nazir he or her? Are they holy or are they, um, or are they a sinner? So look at Pasuk Ches, Rashi. Rashi says, why is the Nazir called Kadosh? We're not saying he's holy. We're not saying he's holy. It's not that his abstinence and asceticism has led to holiness. Now, holy here means he can't have contact with a corpse. Holiness is the opposite of impurity. He's pure. Says Rashi, Kadosh in this context means he's pure, therefore he can't have contact with the corpse. But don't think how holy here means he's holy, as in, what, a holy Jew, a holy brother. He's not a holy brother. He's a chote, he's a sinner. Kadosh here means Kadosh is a guf. It means he's pure. That's one of the criteria to be a Nazir is 
You can't be impure. In contrast, in contrast, look at the Sfarno. Kadoshiyah says the Sfarno. Nivdal menataivos achamrios. No, he's holy. Why is he holy? Because he is apart from worldly temptations. When you overcome desire, when you overcome temptation, that's how you achieve holiness. This Nazir is holy because he lives an ascetic life. Because he is apart. Because he is sovereign over his temptations and desires. Nivdal, he's separate and apart. Menataivos, hachamrios, from the physical desires. He is not only uh, pure in the Tameh sense, or Tahor sense, but he is Kadosh. He is holy because he is apart from desire. So there you see the first hit to this question of, is the Nazir holy or is the Nazir a sinner? Or is the Nazir a sinner? So the third criteria is, no contact with the corpse. That would lead to impurity. Impurity brings down the spirit and the soul, limits the contact one can have in the Beis HaMikdash and so on, and that's antithetical to the goals of the, of the Nazir. Of the Nazir. And then the Parsha goes on to delineate if he does by accident come in contact with a corpse. What if he can't help it? What if he's sitting in the base medrash learning and the guy next to him, his chavrusa, drops dead of a heart attack? He did nothing wrong. He didn't intentionally have contact with a corpse. But somebody dies. He's sitting in the same OL. He's under the same roof as the person who died. He becomes contaminated himself. So the Parsha goes on to tell us the sacrifices that he offers... Uh, in order to uh, purify it and he has to start again start from the top he now begins his Nazir pledge all the way from the beginning and then the Parsha concludes this not the Parsha of Naso but the Parsha of Nazir by telling us how he concludes his status of being a Nazir he finishes his term of Nazirus he offers certain sacrifices and Zos Torahs a Nazir these are the laws of a Nazir so which is it? holy? is he holy? did he achieve something special? or is he a cheater? Did he take a shortcut? Is he somebody who is a chote? Is he somebody who is a sinner for whom he needs to bring a sacrifice? So look at the Kliyakar, Pasuk Yud Aleph. says the Kliyakar. The two sides of this debate I'll share with you. There are many, but I'll share with you here the Kliyakar and the Ramban. says the Kliyakar. He needs to atone for the fact that he sinned. What was his sin? Because he had contact with the corpse. Even though it was by accident, he should have. It was an accident he could have avoided. So he needs atonement for contact with the corpse. Rabbi Lazar Akafar Omer, Ashetziar Atzma Menayayin. Rabbi Lazar Akafar, Rabbi Lazar Akafar is one of the Tanaim. If you go on, when I was in Israel a few months ago, if you go to Tzipori in the north of Israel, in the great museum that they have there, you uh, they have the stone that was on top of the entrance to his base medrash. It says the base medrash of Rabbi Lazar Akafar. You know how incredible that is? We're studying his words over 2,000 years, close to 2,000 years uh, later. And they have, the, the, what's it called, the mantle? The, the lintel. The lintel, thank you. The lintel that would, that would sit over the entrance of his uh, base medrash, Rabbi Lazar HaKafar. Anyway, so uh, Rabbi Lazar HaKafar says, Now, you know why he's bringing korban chatas? You know why he brings this sacrifice? Because he vowed to abstain from wine. He vowed to abstain from wine. So what, what, did, what was wrong with that? So look at the next paragraph. Says, I want to explain the following. You know what the sin is of becoming a Nazir? Nazir 
מחלקל דבריו במשפט לא היה צורך לינדו ולהזיר. כי מי יעקב היה ידו להזנהג בפרישוס ובארחק אז המותרת בלא נדר. This individual, if they were righteous, and they were just, and they were straight, they could have abstained from all these things without having to take a vow. They could have achieved holiness within, permissive, within permissiveness. In other words, they could have achieved holiness, go to the other one, they could have achieved holiness within the permissible. You don't have to go to the extent of taking a vow of saying that I won't have wine, just have one cup of wine, have half a cup of wine, or don't have wine without taking the vow. Why is this individual taking the oath? Why is he taking the vow? Because he or she realizes they have no self-control. They lack the self-control and the discipline to achieve holiness on their own. They need to take a vow. They need to take an oath. They need to impose upon themselves from the outside restrictions and boundaries because they lack the discipline and self-control to achieve it on their own. And you know what happens as a result? They cause great pain to themselves. Because you know what happens when you take an oath that something's off limits, when you swear you're not going to have something? Guess what? You want it more than ever. You can't help stop thinking about it. You become obsessed with it. And you want it more than anything. says that this individual, someone who takes a vow is called a sinner. You know why? What you reveal when you have to take a vow is that you don't have the self-control to take care of it without the vow. So if you need to cut back from potato chips, just cut back from potato chips. But if you have to say, I take a shvu, I take a vow, I take an oath, that hereby these potato chips are forbidden to me. Which the Torah sees as being binding. Those potato chips now have the status of pork. If you eat the potato chips when you've taken a proper vow not to eat them, it is, from a halachic standpoint, the equivalent of eating pork. Literally. We have the ability through our words to transform the permissible into the forbidden. You could turn potato chips into pork. But what does it say about a person who has to go that far to turn potato chips into pork? It says they don't have the discipline and self-control to simply stop eating potato chips or to have one potato chip and not eat the entire bag. So says the Kliyakar, this individual who could have abstained from wine and who could have de-emphasized the physical, the material, his hair, her hair, had to take an oath, a vow, that reveals their weakness. They are spiritually weak and therefore they're called the Chotet. And not only that, they have increased and they have promoted their Yetzirah for the very thing that they take in the vow to abstain from. Because I promise you, if you take a vow and say, these potato chips are like pork for me, all you're going to think about are potato chips. And you're going to walk into every supermarket and convenience store and gas station, and your eyes are going to be drawn directly to the potato chips. And you're going to be at a party, and someone else is going to be munching potato chips, and you're going to have the shakes. You're going to go crazy and eating potato chips. Because when you... The, the, you know, it's, it's the forbidden apple. When you make the 
something forbidden to you, it draws greater attention, makes a person want it even more. And the Kliyakar goes on and he elaborates and he describes, I think so beautifully, that does the Nazir achieve holiness in their asceticism and abstinence? Yes. But it's a holiness which is achieved through a shortcut. Real holiness is not by leaving this world. Real holiness is by engaging this world and nevertheless being holy. Real holiness is when you can not be afraid and not have to abstain from the world God gave us, but you can engage His world and achieve holiness from within it. When you can be, take it in a dignified way and elevate His physical world. So when you leave the physical world, can you be holy? Sure you can. But it's a shortcut. It's a counterfeit avenue and journey towards that holiness. And says the Kliyakar, that's why he's called Chote. The Ramban has a different view. Look at the Ramban on Pasuk Yedalad, and with this we end. The Ramban says, you know why he's called the Chote? Torah doesn't give you the reason why he has to bring a Korban Chatas, a sin offering, on the day he concludes his, his uh, term. You know why he brings the sacrifice? Because he's ending his term. He should have remained this way forever. What do you mean he wants to go back to the regular world? He's going to go back to grooming his hair or her hair? Go back to drinking wine? Go back to contact with a corpse? Go back, they're going to leave this elevated status to go back to the mundane world? That individual brings a korban chatas. Says the Ramban, because the Nazir has achieved holiness, and it's a proper, admirable holiness. They shouldn't be leaving it. In other words, for the Kliyaka, you know why you bring a chatas? You belong back in the mundane world. You bring a chatas because you took a detour, you took a counterfeit detour through abstinence to get to holiness. But you belong back in the mundane world. You bring the chatas because you became a Nazir. Says the Ramban, no. You belong in the holy world. You bring the chatas because you're leaving that world to go back to the mundane world. You really belong and should stay there for good because that's where real holiness is achieved. You have a fundamental disagreement on holiness. Is it through abstinence and asceticism? Is that a, or is that a counterfeit uh, journey and version to get there? So that's a little bit about the uh, Nazir. There's a lot more to talk about. Why is the Nazir connected to Parshas Birchas Kohanim, the section that follows right afterwards? But we are out of time. I wish you a wonderful Shabbos. <laughs>